Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. This week, Hector and I talk about Twitter's data leak. We educate our listeners about APIs and how we can better protect ourselves. We also talk about Russia's hacking crew, Cold River, and we answer some of our listeners' questions. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Hector, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great, my friend. How about yourself? Well, I was doing well until I woke up the other morning and I saw that Hector Monsecure was back to hacking. What the hell, my friend? We we had such a good thing going with Hacker in the Fed, and now you're hacking again. Well, <laughs> as you can imagine, I was equally I was equally surprised when uh, I woke up myself and I I had a Google alert, and the Google alert was about someone on Twitter. Um, a news anchor, a sports anchor by the name of Jack Curry that had his Twitter account compromised. And it just so happens that once the compromise took place, the attacker decided to use their real name or their pseudonym, uh, Hector Monsieur, as the hacker. Um, so obviously I was paranoid for the rest of the day. <laughs> oh, I waited for that knock, huh? Yeah, I was waiting for the knock <laughs> on the door. I was like, oh shit, here, here we go again. Well, I'm glad to hear that that wasn't you. Uh, I'm glad you let our audience know that, that you're not back to hacking. Um, you know, and, and at least not any illegal hacking. Everything you do is part of red team assessments and, and good hacking and passing that information on. So, so I, I'm glad, I'm glad that knock didn't come, but maybe, you know, sometimes <laughs> the FBI is slow, so it might take them a few weeks. <laughs> well, I hope to hear this episode and, and, and they take, uh, they take my, um, the fact that I'm saying it wasn't me as fact, hopefully, but no, the all jokes aside, um, you know, there, there has been a lot of, uh, you know, interesting things happening on Twitter over the last few weeks. Um, after, you know, big leak took place. Um, and, you know, the one thing I'll say before we get to that conversation is that what's fascinating about um, this topic that we're really going to touch on is that it, it, it kind of emphasizes the importance of not only web application security, uh, but specifically API security. So, Chris, would you like to kind of introduce the topic and then we'll kind of jump into it? So we're going to kind of pivot off of uh, Hector Monsegur returning to hacking and how uh, Jack Curry lost control of his Twitter account and how that information we've seen in the news today in the last few few days that, uh, you know, quite a few Twitter accounts were compromised or, or, or information at least leaked. So I think we're going to get it out there of really what happened, sort of how it happened. What information was leaked uh, and kind of uh, some information that our users can do to find out whether their account was leaked um, and, and then talk about API security and really what is API uh, and how we can uh, better secure ourselves uh, and, and just know about it. So there's a story out reported there was 200 to 400 million Twitter user accounts, PII, personal information put out there in the last couple of weeks. I think uh, we've seen some uni some reporting that's come out after the fact that they did some duplications and that it was really just over 211 million unique email addresses. Um, and it seems to have happened through an API of a vulnerability. You want to talk about that a little bit, Hector? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to touch on the fact that when we say PII, at least in this context, um, we're talking about you know the Twitter accounts with the associated email, uh, associated phone number. Uh, creation date, uh, but nothing like social security numbers, passwords, or anything too sensitive, right? Yeah, no passwords were reported to be be uh, stolen on this one. So, I mean, at this point, here's what we know. We know that there was an issue with an API, and API stands for Application Programming Interface. Um, when you go to a website in your browser or in your mobile browser, you know, the website will load, uh, or rather, it's a whole fascinating uh, sequence of events, right? You, you put in a, a domain or a website into your browser, your uh, device will then send out DNS requests. It'll get an IP address for that website, and then it'll go to the website on the web server port. Now, the application itself, um, if they want, to, if the application wants to be dynamic or it's programmed in a way to be dynamic, 
then, you know, you may see that initial request for opening up, let's say, the roots or the main website. But in the background, there's a bunch of requests that are happening asynchronously, sometimes asynchronously. Those requests will pull information like your profile information, maybe your follower count. So by the time the website loads, let's say in this case, Twitter, there is probably dozens or hundreds uh, and maybe even in some cases like Facebook, thousands of API requests are taking place that will post all sorts of information that will be rendered on your browser. Now, here's the interesting thing. As you guys know, uh, as the audience may know at this point, there's things like bug bounty programs, uh, there's web application penetration tests and assessments. There's a whole bunch of different ways to test an application to see how it works, see if there are vulnerabilities, access control issues, et cetera. But here's what I found over the years that a lot of uh, not only researchers, but developers uh, kind of have uh, forgotten about the importance of securing their API endpoints, right? These are the URLs on the back end that are being executed by the web application to pull information. Now, if, if there are access control issues on these endpoints, then it would allow an adversary, an attacker, the bad guy, to be able to extract information that they probably were not meant to extract in the first place, okay? So I hope that that kind of gives you an introduction to what API security is and what's it about here. So uh, just to summarize it, Hector, API or, or, or application program interface, it's really just a way for two or more computer programs to communicate with each other, right? It's, it's just, a, you know, they can share information back and forth and that helps make the user experience a little bit better. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, could, you could have a web application, right? Let's say Twitter, and then you could have, let's say, a thousand API endpoints, right? For logging in, logging out of your account, for pulling your follower account. These all could be theoretically uh, all different applications, right? It, it's not one part. It's not. It's not necessarily uh, one code base. So you may have developers working on the login logout function. You may have another set of developers working on Twitter DMs, right? The direct messages. Um, and so this is why, you know, as we're talking about this topic, you're going to notice that there may have been discrepancies in access controls for either or. Um, and so, you know, we kind of end up with the scenario that we have here. But yes, a- a- API is, is an interesting area of research for, for, for some of you that are getting interested in cybersecurity. Um, API security is still, in my honest opinion, very much overlooked in many cases. So let's kind of go through and how the this actual Twitter uh, data leak, we'll call it, or, or Twitter hack actually happened. And, and you know, you, you brought up the good point that, you know, this this included a number of celebrities and politicians and everyday uh, users. Again, 211 million unique email addresses associated with this leak. But it seems like they the, the hackers used some sort of program to send information to Twitter, uh, causing Twitter to respond in a certain way, uh, able to get this information. And it was done fairly quickly. Yeah. I mean, think about it like this, right? So if you are a researcher or developer, you may have access to tools like Burp Suite or OWASP's Zap or even Fiddler 2. or or if you're hardcore, <laughs> if you go into your browser and you right-click and then you go into inspect, um, you can even use that inspect feature to debug the application as you're loading it. And so what you will see in the background is all these different API calls, right? All these requests for information from the web application, and that's returned back to the web browser for it to be rendered um, or to be parsed by a JavaScript or some other element of the of the website. So, you know, so that's, that's, you know, on the technical side, here's what happened. Someone somewhere, they probably had some sort of intercepting proxy. I just gave you some examples now, Burp Suite and so on. They logged into Twitter and then they followed the login flow. And what those researchers found, what the, what the actor in this case had identified is that if you, during the login process, submit an email address and or phone number, uh, Twitter, the API call for the login process will return back to the username that you're trying to log into. So, using breach databases and uh, you know leaked word lists, email lists, sorry, and phone numbers, the adversary in this case had a data set, and with, with that data set, they were able to create a script, maybe in Python, maybe in C sharp, that would continuously log into Twitter or attempt to log into Twitter and supply an email or phone number from that data set. 
And with that information, with that response, rather, they would get the username associated to the email or phone number. So imagine this. Imagine a scenario where you have like a private, secret, you know, undercover Twitter account, but you have it associated to one of your email addresses. One of those email addresses um, have been leaked in a, a previous breach and are, 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 are is now part of the attacker's data set here. So what would happen is when their script is running and your email address is submitted to Twitter, the API response would have your secret undercover username. So they're going to find people's creeper accounts? That's crazy. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff, right? Uh, there was a, uh, you know, there's a group on Twitter called VX Underground, and they actually interviewed one of the researchers uh, or, or finders of the bug. Uh, judging by the screenshots, they indicated that other people have had access. Rather, they've, they've identified that other people um, had access to this, this endpoint uh, and probably had scraped much more data than themselves. So as you can imagine, the kind of data that came back uh, as a result of this automated process was potentially you know, private accounts, uh, Twitter handles rather, associated to emails and phone numbers that were breached in, uh, you know, previously. Yeah, I think you can pull that from the numbers alone. Let's just look at the metadata. And all metadata is, is data about data. So originally the hackers came out and said that they had 400 million users. You know, security then went through and deduplicated all those down to 211 million. So that'll show you how many like quote unquote creeper accounts we had, you know, nearly half um, of all the email addresses that they pumped in had a secondary Twitter account, you know, so I'm sure the numbers, you know, are a little skewed for some probably at three and four, but it's interesting to, to, to see how the deduplication kind of uh, in associated, you know, so you can take that data set and kind of go through and find out, you know, someone's known Twitter account, and then you're going to find out that they had a separate Twitter account uh, under the same email. So it's interesting to look at that data. But uh, while we're on that topic, um, you know, like how can our users uh, know whether they're in this data set or not? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great that's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up, because one thing that people would do at this point is try to find the data themselves. And uh, I I would I would ask you not to. Right. I mean, where this data is stored at this point, I mean, I've seen it on shady forums uh, basically places on the dark web or deep web that you really don't want to be associated with. The good news is there's a website called haveibeenpwned.com, uh, pwned uh, spelled P-W-N-E-D.com. If you type that into Google or whatever search engine you use, it'll pop right up. Uh, you can go to that site and right on the front page, you'll see a Twitter search. Uh, the guys that have put together the site, I mean, uh, Troy Hunt and his team, fantastic researchers, They've already added the data set to their search engine. So if you put in your email address or your phone number, it'll tell you right off the bat, hey, yeah, you're actually part of the Twitter breach. Um, you may have to you know, change your information, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, from then on in, that's, that's you know, now you have to work on your, secu- your personal security measures um, to kind of mitigate the damage from this. You know, and, and, and the one thing I'll say is that, you know, and, and kind of Chris alluded to this earlier, uh, celebrity accounts have been compromised so far. We saw Pierce Morgan have his account uh, taken over. There's a few others. And then, of course, the Jack Curry guy. Um, the real Hector Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and again, Jack, it wasn't me. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, it definitely we have we have seen some repercussions for this data, this set of data being leaked for sure. Yeah, just to add to what Tiger's saying, and again, kind of build on it. So I've seen the data. I, I've kind of peered through it. But I've also seen it for sale for as low as $2 on, on the, some of the dark market sites. Um, so, you know, if you, you go out there and try to hunt for the data yourself, uh, you know, when, when a big story like this is in the news, you know, bad guys will post it up someplace in, in order to try to steal your information or to put it in a place and put malware inside of it because it's the size of it, it's easy to hide malware. Um, just, yeah. Totally recommend uh, do not trying to find uh, stolen uh, data online to look through it yourself. Um, you know, Hector offers a, a good option for that. Oh, yeah. No. And, you know, the one thing I'll say, guys, uh, you know, and, and this is to the audience here is just, you know, be careful when you're trying to you know, do your own research. I, I am a researcher. Chris is a researcher. Uh, we love kind of digging through this stuff. But the reality is, is that, you know, you have to be prepared for. Uh, you know, it's out of bound attacks. You know, if you go to one of these forums, uh, you find a data set, you go on the dark web, you find a marketplace item, 
you have no idea one of your purchasing or looking for or getting what it is that you're looking for, um, you might you might be getting yourself infected along the way. So definitely avoid that and and use that public resource that I mentioned uh, before. So the the one thing I would say here, Chris, is that so we kind of know you know a bit of the technical background. You know, it, it was a another low hanging fruit kind of scenario. Had had it been uh, a situation where you could iterate through user IDs to get information on users, then that would definitely raise the severity of the vulnerability or the attack path. Uh, because it is, uh, at the time, intended f- uh, functionality by Twitter, um, it's not necessarily uh, a high severity vulnerability. If anything, it would be like a low severity informational, depending on the information you got. And the information that we see so far is, you know, the attacker cannot randomly query your Twitter handle um, for associated person identifying information, right? The attacker would need some information from you, whether it's your email or phone number, to actually get your Twitter handle and make the correlation or make the association. Um, so you might, many of you may find that you're not even on that list. Um, but it does not mean that you're not uh, vulnerable to these sort of attacks. Uh, we talk all the time about making sure that you have separate passwords for separate accounts, right? You know, you could take advantage of maybe purchasing your own domain and creating aliases per website. Um, that way, if an account is compromised, it's, it's kind of isolated. The attack path is isolated to that one account. So these are definitely things to think about um, when we think about valuable lessons from this situation. Like what about, what, what do you think, Chris? Is there anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, you brought up a good point that, you know, the, the, what our listeners could have done to protect themselves. You know, just in this particular one, the, 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 there's nothing you can do. This was a vulnerability in Twitter. This wasn't a, a vulnerability in the way they set up their account or anything like that. So, um, you know, using tips like Hector said, make, you know, maybe you have, uh, maybe we have, a, you know, Chris at, you know, yahoo.com is my email account. Maybe if I wanted to, you know, you know, compartmentalize my attack vector. I just set up a twit uh, another account for Twitter, like Chris Twitter at yahoo.com. Um, you know, so then, you know, if this email is exposed, it's not my really my daily email. Uh, it's my email that just associated with Twitter, because again, we don't have control of it uh, in this, in this case. So, but it, it was interesting to me, Hector, that Twitter disclosed the vulnerability in August of 22. Um, and they said that they fixed the issue back in January of 22. Um, and apparently, apparently it was reported to them through a bug bounty that they had. Does that say anything to you about who the attacker was? And they kind of like, maybe they were done doing everything. Uh, obviously, they were done doing it in January 22. Um, and then they just reported the bug to Twitter. Um, so the, the bad guy would have scraped all the information that he wanted uh, and then uh, and then reported the bug and got maybe a reward that way. I mean, that's such a great question. And, you know, I don't want to... Uh... I just don't want to assume what the bug research researcher did in this in this case. Um, but here's one thing that I do know. As someone that has submitted bug bounty reports, it's kind of weird how and I, I don't know, it, it's just it's just, you know, one of those human phenomenons, right? Where I find a bug, I think it's unique, I go to submit it, and it just so happens that three hours before someone submitted the same bug, right? Now, does that mean that that researcher had compromised my computer and was watching me? No. Does that mean that, um, you know, maybe the uh, the bug bounty platform is compromised? No, not necessarily. It could be, but not necessarily. Um, you know, researchers tend to kind of move in waves sometimes, right? I remember there was a period of time where the big rave was DNS security. And then you had people like Dan Kaminsky doing a bunch of d- different DNS um, assessments and reports. Then you had other researchers come out with other DNS vulnerabilities almost at the same exact time. So I think if I were to if I were to speculate as to what happened here, I feel like multiple people found the issue. At least one reported the vulnerability, and others scraped data for potential sale. Um, it seems like most of this happened in 2021, and um, so this data set itself is already about a year old, right? But the reality is that you know. It's possible the bug bounty researcher also said, hey, why not? Let me just make some extra money on the side. Or they could even told one of their friends, like, hey, buddy, look, I found this really cool bug. And then that, that friend would try to monetize it, right? So to, the, to you uh, researchers out there listening to this uh, podcast, 
The one thing I'll tell you is that if you identify a security vulnerability, unless you're working as part of a team, uh, keep it to yourself. <laughs> because you may end up in a very, uh, very compromising position where if you, if you report a, a high severity issue and then that high severity issue is being exploited, there may be attribution back to you. And I'm not sure you want that knock on the door. Definitely don't want that knock on the door. No. <laughs> Been there, done that. Exactly. Hector, let's talk about some uh, APIs and kind of go into APIs and, and what, what we're seeing and the rise of the security world. So, again, we talked about, you know, what APIs are. And they're, they're using e-commerce from anywhere from logging in to displaying products, handling shipping, calculating taxes, subscriptions. The APIs are what's in the background that kind of connect these elements to make the user experience seamless. But by the numbers, just look at the number, API attacks are on the rise. Um, API traffic has increased 681% since last year. It's a huge jump, seven times growth in, in APIs. 77% um, of retailers are reporting API security incident in 2021. Um, and there's predicted API attacks would become the most common attack vector for enterprise web applications in this next year. Uh, are you seeing that same thing in the industry, Hector? Absolutely. And I have a lot of clients coming to me now uh, just to do API security assessments or uh, engagements because it seems like people have caught on, right? Aside from cybersecurity researchers that have been doing bug bounties and research you know, for a decade already, they, they, they know all too well about the potential gaps in API security, but now you're having a lot of uh, uh, you know, some of these actors, some of these bad guys that are like, wait, so you're telling me that if I make one request, I could potentially get all the data on the back end just by removing, you know, a, a, a session token. Wow. Yeah. It, it's, it's something that I'm seeing, I've been seeing, and I feel like it's going to continue moving forward. So here, here's why API can be extremely useful for a bad guy, right? So I'll give you the bad guy's perspective. If there are access control problems within the application in general, then it may be possible for adversaries to query the backend database over API without even having to authenticate, okay? Without even having to log in or create an account, if they know which request to make, they may be able to automate the extraction or exfiltration um, of sensitive information. Okay, so that's one. Now, let's assume an application has uh, fantastic access controls, which requires a valid account on the web application. Great. Um, there may be other underlying issues that may allow an attacker to get more information that they actually um, should be seeing. For example, let's say that an API um, allows a insecure direct object reference, uh, which, which is very similar to an access control issue. It would, uh, it would allow an adversary to iterate through user IDs or identifiers and get information for other users aside from their own account. That's a major issue. It's a major blunder. And in fact, that's one of the more common attack paths, Chris, that you may see on like HackerOne, a bug bounty program. Okay. Um, now let's move forward beyond that. No longer does an adversary need to, um, you know, have a browser-based proxy where they have to log into an account and upload an image and then uh, modify the image with uh, a payload. Uh, no, they don't have to do that anymore. Using tools like Burp Suite or OWASP, uh, the Zap, um, or you know the man-in-the-middle proxy uh, tool, um, an attacker could automate the testing, identification, and validation of upload-based vulnerabilities right through the API endpoints. So to kind of kind of summarize all this nerd talk <laughs> with the audience, right? API security uh, is essential. And the broader and the more API endpoints that you add into your application, into your ecosystem, the broader your attack surface. So something to think about. Yeah, so another, another thing I was reading about, Hector, reading about um, API security are zombie APIs and shadow APIs. Uh, Zombo APIs being, you know, APIs that they thought were disabled, but they were still alive out there. Uh, and the shadow APIs are the ones that kind of live outside of the normal web application scope. Is that something that's uh, easily found in, in an assessment? Yeah. So, uh, so that's a great point, right? So what you're really talking about is, uh, and I'm going to give you examples. I'm great at examples here. 
if a development team deploys more than one environment, meaning production, right? So that's the main website you see. But you may also run into a QA environment, okay? You may also run into a staging environment, all right? Sometimes they call it the dev environment. So now we're looking at a minimum of two different versions of your website online. Now, what's interesting about that is, so you have the main website, let's say Twitter.com. Now, if the attacker is able to identify by means of DNS enumeration or SSL certificate enumeration, if they find staging.twitter.com, which is the staging and or development environment, then the attacker would be able to blast that endpoint away without you know, being identified by any security processes that normally watch for Twitter.com traffic, okay? So that's where the shadow comes in. Uh, you may also have like old.twitter.com, which may be a reference to an old Twitter code base, which would be your zombie API, right? Where you could query uh, API endpoints that no longer have or really never implemented the security fixes that Twitter.com's production site may have, right? So do those situations exist? Yes, I see them all the time. You know, this is why DevOps security, which is a very high-paying and super lucrative position for any uh, security-focused uh, and experienced DevOps operator um, or manager, really excels. Because these guys would be able to identify and mitigate, you know, such a, uh, uh, I would say, such a, a blunder or deployment prior to it going live online and being accessible. Now, if you're in an organization, you have a development team and they have a staging and olds and uh, a backup um, you know, set of your code base, there's no DevOps security processes, there's no uh, methodology on deployment, then yes, you're pretty much open to attack. And it's pretty crazy. So let me just summarize what you have for best practices and what I've heard. And there's one in there that I don't think we've talked about, I want to talk about. Um, API discovery, you know, finding out your inventory of all your APIs, including the zombie and the shadow APIs, um, proper authentication and authorization. You talked about that. Um, API uh, behavior and analytics, you know, checking the API for malicious traffic and analysis. Uh, and then the last one is API rate limiting or how fast these things can be queried and, and come back and forth from the outside. Um, would that have helped Twitter in this, uh, this attack? I mean, not, we don't know exactly how it happened and what length of time it was being done, but I mean, 4 million requests to come back for, to get records. Let's say they just ran it all at once. Uh, that should be an outlier, correct? It could raise red flags if the attackers are using the same IP address, 100%. If Twitter security team does any sort of log aggregation, maybe some rule sets there, um, they're analyzing logs in real time or not, they would identify one single IP address requesting 400 million logins, okay? But here's where we stand today. Big shout out to Mike Felch and a couple other people. They've developed tools that rotate your IP address. You don't need proxies anymore. Remember back in the days, you would have to like scan the internet for proxies? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's not even required anymore, Chris. Uh, all you have to do is sign up for an AWS account, sign up for the AWS gateway service, and you can literally uh, rotate IP addresses per request or per set number of requests. Um, and you would use API IP addresses, or sorry, AWS IP addresses uh, to request all 400 million uh, Twitter accounts uh, without raising any red flags. The, the only red flag that may be possible, the, that, may, that may get raised, is the fact that that login endpoint has been hit 400 million times more than usual. But aren't you still using U.S. infrastructure to make this attack and then you're vulnerable to uh, U.S. law enforcement? 100%. Okay. Absolutely. You like using that attack vector. <laughs> yeah. So if you're using AWS or Google Cloud, I mean, every cloud service at this point allows some sort of IP rotation. And so... Yeah, you would be live. You you would definitely be at the the radar, right? Or the, the, the I would say the the crosshairs of U.S. law enforcement. Yeah, but you answered my question. You answered my question that avoiding security, avoid being picked up by Twitter. Uh, and thinking about it now, is, is four hundred million requests to Twitter uh, over a, a day? Is that a lot? I mean, I, I doubt it based on some of the numbers that Elon's been putting out there, especially during you know things like the World Cup and that sort of thing. The numbers are outrageous. Well, well, think about it like this: if 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 the Twitter folks on the back end 
are visualizing metrics, right? Like using a tool like Nagios or similar to visualize how many login attempts are being done per minute, then they will probably see a small bump and that bump would be the automated scraping, okay? Uh, but you're right. With the number, with the volume of traffic that Twitter gets, more than likely that little bump may seem insignificant because you could get the same bump for the World Cup, right? You may also get the same bump if like there's like a, a new school shooting or something. Every time there's something crazy happening, people just flock to Twitter in one massive wave. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, is it possible for Elon Musk and his security team to identify anomalies? Yeah. But how much noise are they really looking at and how are they quantifying that noise? That's a big, big question. Yeah, it's interesting. Another nerded out conversation, uh, Hector. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. I mean, I'm the resident nerd here, so I, <laughs> I, I, I do I do my best. <laughs> So, Hector, you sent me over a story about Russian hackers targeting U.S. nuclear research laboratories. That was very interesting. I enjoyed this. Thanks for sending it over. Let's let's talk about it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a great topic. I mean, it. it, it uh, I, I would have to say that we, you know, we had a discussion with Jeff Carr not that long ago, where we discussed the um, well, the fact that we haven't really seen too many Russian campaigns, at least those that have been documented publicly. Uh, so this this story was interesting to me because now we're getting some some information about some campaigns that have taken place um, that seem to be active, and there's at least one group that's out there, kind of uh, you know, working on behalf of the Russian government or are affiliated to them in some way. The one they're calling Cold River. Yes, indeed, Cold River seems like the the you know the name that has been coined for this group. And aside from you know this recent story we're about to discuss. It also seems that they were involved in the hack and leak of, uh, you know, the MI6 guy. It was a story that we read about, you know, back in May or so. Um, and that was kind of like, uh, you know, I, I thought it was like a hacktivist operation. Right. The article says Cold River broke into and leaked emails belonging to former head of Britain's MI6 spy service. I am a Russian hacker, let's say. Let's, uh, don't, don't quote me on that. Don't don't. Don't take that out of context. <laughs> I'm not a Russian hacker. But let's, let's for this say I'm a Russian hacker and I want to do an intelligence operation. Mm -hmm. Why would Russian hackers leak information or data that they got about MI6? And for those who don't know, MI6 is, is, in Great Britain is the same as the, like the CIA here in the United States. That is such a great point. I, if, if I were a nation state actor um, breaking into like the director of CIA's emails – personal emails, um, you know, that would be a goldmine for um, all sorts of operations or operators to kind of look and comb through. So why would I leak that? That's why when I first heard about the story back in May or so, in my head, I'm like, okay, well, maybe these are like, you know, Russian supporting actors, maybe hacktivists, maybe they're trying to cause some turmoil within the alliances, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the Ukrainian alliances. Um I mean, I found it fascinating, but then again, I'm like, you know, this seems kind of odd. Yeah, if they had access to these emails and they'd say, you know, th they wouldn't give up that they had access. Let's say they got access and then lost access. They wouldn't have then – you don't want to expose that you know this some of these things. Um, I mean, that's the whole – how the intelligence game works. I mean, you don't want them to know that you have any inclination of what they're doing. Um, and, and then you don't want to give up how you're doing things or who, even who you're targeting. Um, it just doesn't make sense that, you know, th if this is a you know, big and bad, you know, Cold River is a big and bad Russian uh, intelligence service or, uh, you know, part of FSB or something like that, they they wouldn't leak the emails. They they wouldn't leak that they even had access to it. it, it that part just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, well, let's look at it historically, right? So even going back to 2016 during the election year, you had the email leak of uh, the Democratic National Committee. Remember that? That was a whole big scandal. Sure. Um, even back then, you know, if you were to analyze it from different angles, you would say, okay, so this might be a Russian operative. It could be a hacktivist. It could be a Russian hacktivist. Uh, someone somewhere wanted to hurt the DNC by leaking these emails and cause enough turmoil and strife that it would it would sow distrust within the organization. Um, so, okay, in that in that event, in that scenario, rather, 
um, I think that, okay, a leak makes sense, right? You want to cause enough distrust in the DNC that um, and, and hope, cross your fingers, that one of those emails is a bombshell email, right? Um, but in this case, the you know the the former leader of the MI6 emails being leaked, I'm not sure if it has the same value as that 2016 compromise. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Again, I'm not seeing the outputs of it. I haven't read through. You know what? What you know, intelligence is is you know, it's almost like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's the same with intelligence. Um, you know, if you don't live in that world, you can you know pick little details out that that people don't realize. You know, I, I kind of realized that recently looking through you know the the Twitter FBI files or, or what they're calling them. Um, you know, if you don't have that you know eye of a former FBI agent, you quite don't understand. You know. The, the, some of the things the FBI was asking Twitter to do um, and how kind of crazy it is. Um, I I think it's the same way with the intelligence. So, um, you know, having not looked through it, I can't compare the two, um, but but it just seems strange to me. It just seems very strange to me. But in this article, they're talking about this cold river had targeted um, three different uh, nuclear weapons um, or laboratories in the United States uh, by creating fake login pages for each institution and then emailing nuclear scientists in an effort to try to get them to to log in and, and grab their credentials. Oh, yeah. I mean, low hanging fruit, you know, common fishing campaign, maybe maybe more geared and directed towards these uh, these nuclear scientists or these scientists in general, uh, which would upgrade that to what? A spear phishing attack, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it works. That's the point, right? These kind of attacks work. And it's like I said, it's a low-hanging fruit. Um, it, it's usually like the first step into attempting to compromise an organization. So I, I could see why they even tried it. Now, I would be curious to see if anyone actually fell for it. Let me ask you a different angle. And maybe this is just Jeff Carr picking away at my brain and planting a little bug in there and, and, and looking at things. Also, the, the first thing that jumped out when I read this article was, one, this seems like a really stupid attack. I mean, it, it's a, just, it's not stupid. It's a, you're like you said, it's an entry level. It, it's get in there and try to just get some login credentials. And then it goes on to talk about some emails that were broken into for the head of a major spy agency and that they were leaked. Um, another thing that I don't think a high end, you know, Russian, you know, intelligence squad of hackers is is going to focus on. And then it goes on to talk about um, leading U.S. officials or people with inside, you know, the uh, U.S. security, uh, cybersecurity industry um, talking about uh, this is one of the most important hacking groups you've never heard of. Is that just it, that makes me really kind of uh, paranoid about what Jeff Carr said about maybe this the West is really just bolstering the capabilities of Russia. And we just hadn't seen anything come out of Russia lately. So we need an article like this to refresh our brain that that Russian hackers are so bad and we all better get a bit really good cybersecurity or the Russians are going to get us. Well, I mean, when I read this article, I also thought about Jeff Carr because it did it does bring up a good point, right? Um, I mean, at, at this point in time, almost every nation on the planet with a budget geared towards intelligence uh, could operate and engage these kind of operations. We know just from looking at the different types of, you know, breach reports, incident response reports, I would say published by several different, you know, cybersecurity companies or researchers, journalists, et cetera. We kind of know how some of these companies, uh, these countries operate. Uh, when you look at China, for example, China is a really good example where, yes, they have like uh, their underground quote unquote hacker community, you know, but a lot of the operations that we see are, you know, mostly attributable to the Chinese government in some way, right? But when we look at Russian campaigns, uh, it, it's hard to tell whether or not these are government-supported, government-funded, government-run campaigns, or these are random groups that support, you know, the Russian agenda. I'll give you a great example for me, from my perspective. If the United States was at war, there was a pretty ugly war. You know, and I was still the bad guy. I was still kind of in the gray zone, gray area. I, I would totally be doing operations um, in support of the United States. And so I, the thing that, that really changes my, I would say, kind of guides my, my, my final opinion on this, um, leaning towards it being just like a random non-Russian government group, is the fact that they, they would start leaking stuff, right? And um, the MI6 emails was a good example of that, but also the phishing campaign. They're... The phishing campaign is very entry level. 
The fact that it was caught is very interesting to me. Gives me a few indicators. There's a lot of zero days that Russia could afford to buy, right? It's a lot of research that they could utilize right now to compromise probably some of these um, national, you know, laboratories. They probably do not need fishing campaigns. So my guess and my leaning here is that this is not a government-run operation or campaign. It might be a group that are just loyal to you know the Russian agenda. I mean, that's my take from the whole thing. Now, going back to your point where you kind of discuss, you know, well, maybe this is just, you know, the media trying to pump up, you know, Russia's capabilities, right? I kind of agree to that as well. I mean, we're just talking about a, a, a fishing campaign. It's possible that these are groups of like teenagers, right? It's also possible that, you know, they're not that sophisticated. Hence the leaking of the MI6 emails back in May. Right. Yeah, it just it, it the the two attacks just don't to me align with this, this you know elite you know hacking you know crew that, that's based on intelligence. The, both moves are are just aren't in line with that that modus operandi. Now, with that being said, I think we're both in agreement there. Um, but with that being said, now we're starting to see activity, at least coming out publicly, that there are campaigns against the U.S. and maybe even Ukrainian allies in general. It leads me to believe, or rather, it leads me to to, to ask a question. Because of the, um, I, I would say, kind of where we at, where we stand today, right? You have this, this 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 conflict going on in Ukraine and all these other issues, kind of uh, these political issues in Europe, especially. There seems to be a lot of demoralization from some countries. There seems to be some uh, uh, some countries kind of diverting or, or rather deviating away from, you know, we must all unite as European countries uh, against the Russian invasion. And I'm really speaking about like. Um, you know, Hungary and some of these other countries, right? So now that we are at this point in time where some campaigns and operations may be taking place, do you think that these governments are working together in tandem, maybe have some sort of like NATO cybersecurity force? Is that something that you think that might be a thing? Or are they still kind of very individual about it? I don't know, man. You That may be above my pay grade. I, I, I you know, sharing the cyber secrets and sharing O-Days, you know, with someone outside, I think that'd be kind of difficult. You know, there's the five eyes. I think they might share information and share capabilities, but but I don't think you know some of the you know the the non five eyes you know get that same you know I, I, they don't get access to some of those same tools. Uh, I might be wrong. Again, I've never lived in this world of you know the the offensive tools and that sort of thing. But but it'd be interesting. Oh yeah, I mean at the very least they probably have some sort of computer computer emergency response team. Or some sort of group that, you know, kind of shares information. Or like here, like we have here in the U.S. with InfraGuard, right? I mean, you know, there's uh, – I'm sure there's something there. I, I think the interesting thing, I would love to be the fly on the wall on the debriefs. Like, hey, we just saw 19 fishing campaigns. We saw the use of two zero days this month. You know, that would be so awesome to see, man. Yeah, that would be exciting. We, we could definitely nerd out in that. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, Hector, we've gotten a lot of good questions from our listeners. Um, if you want to ask us a question, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Questions about hacking, questions about the FBI, questions about uh, our experiences in life, uh, a nerded out question or not a nerded out question, we'll take them. Reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. So a couple came came in this week, Hector, and I, I kind of wanted to go over them. Um, the last one kind of, uh, you know, really kind of set me off, and I and I might go off a little bit on this one. So first, we have Eon reached out to us uh, about a recent episode that we recorded about the shadow brokers and how they changed one of their passwords um, from a very complex 31-character randomly generated uh, password to a password with uh, an R with followed by a bunch of E's. Uh, and Eon wanted to let us know that the password is a reference to a board on 4chan. Um, and he described it as it's like a self-deprecating sequel, sequel of rage. Um, so those, those are Elon's words. So, so. <laughs> Th- thanks for correcting us. Thanks for letting us know. Um, I really appreciate, you know, being enlightened and, and passing those words on to the audience that, that to, to know where these things come from. The, our next one is actual question. And so uh, the listener was anonymous uh, and, and asked, I wanted to know how rare is it what happened with Hector regarding uh, less of a prison sentence for cooperation? 
The fact that he was looking at 125 years in prison and the AUSA agreed to the deal that Hector received, he must have had tremendous value to be offered. Did the FBI propose the deal to the AUSA or did the AUSA come up with it? If it was you, how hard would of a sell was it? Um, it wasn't me that came up with it. And it's, it's not really how the system works. So uh, I met with Hector. Uh, we've talked about that story that night. And I sat down and I, I showed him some of the evidence we had against him. Uh, and I showed him some of the different uh, opinions of, you know, this is what happens if we follow this path. This is what happens if we follow that path. Um, and, and I offered him, you know, cooperation. So I said in the past, you know, normally we don't take uh, the head of an organization and bring them in for cooperation because we have everything. That's the, that's the head of the organization. And we knew, you know, very quickly understood that Hector didn't really know the other people. So um, Hector's cooperation wasn't really about, you know, uh, telling on other people or identifying other people. Um, some of that stuff came out later based on, you know, police work, uh, not necessarily Hector knowing who they were. Um, really Hector's cooperation was about the insight into what was happening in the hacker world at that time. Um, what was going on? How did it really work? How did it really function? Um, alert, because the FBI didn't really have a, a sense of what was happening. But here and there, we'd see things happening, but but it you know it really wasn't a good insight. Um, you know, during that time period of cooperation, you know, Hector literally stopped the hack of over three hundred um, hacks into U.S. government organizations, um, websites, domains, um, over a thousand hacks and other companies around the world. Um, that really was what Hector's cooperation was. And, and the way it works is, you know, we, we brought Hector into the room. He sat down with the FBI, sat down with the uh, AUSAs, and he had to say all the bad things he's ever done. It, it, they, they call it sort of the queen of a, for a day. Um, and really what that's for is to that if Hector was used in court later on, they couldn't pull out bad things that he had done uh, and use it against him like he had lied. So this is really just to clean the slate. He's he, he puts it all out there and then he is charged with an information. An information is a one of the charging documents that's done through the prosecutor. And then Hector crosses his finger. He he crosses his fingers. He hopes that what he's provided, the information that he knows and what he does is good enough um, at the end. He, there's no like, hey, at the end of this, you're going to get this or you're going to get that. So Hector goes to court and the FBI says, these are all the good things Hector has done. Um, the AUSA comes to court and says, these are all the bad things that Hector admitted to doing. Um, and that's put before a judge. And a judge, uh, and Hector has pled guilty to all those bad things, you say. the judge takes those two, takes Hector's character into uh, account, takes all the factors into account, and the judge is the sole person that comes up with the sentence. Um, there is a pretrial sentence part of the, the judiciary branch who kind of you know, has like a point system. You know, Hector's never been arrested before. Hector's, you know, done this, done that. He's been, you know, uh, has all these good things. And there's a calculation. For, for that sort of thing. And that goes, helps into the judge's decision. Uh, the judge could ask me as the case agent, you know, about Hector and the good things that he's done. Um, ask me about the bad things he's, he was accused of doing that he pled guilty to doing, but really like there's no like formalized deal when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, Hector provided a, a, a great uh, cooperation. Um, but again, he didn't know going into it, what exactly uh, the outcome was going to be. Um, Hector, do you want to add anything to that? Or any part of the story that that I didn't know about? No, no, that, that, that was a great answer. And you know, the one thing I learned is that you know, when it comes to sentencing, there are so many factors, right? I mean, Chris and I could have became best friends, and I could have been best friends with the uh, AUSA. Uh, I could have, I could have done everything in the under the sun for these people. But the reality is that it really came down to the judge. And there's a lot of other variables like downward departures and all sorts of different things that could have, you know, made or, or, or you know, made the situation better or, or just made it so much worse. You know, and I, and I, I really was uh, like, like Chris said, I, I did just close my eyes and cross my fingers because, uh, you know, regardless of, of what we ended up doing during that time, the judge could have still hit me with uh, a decent amount of time. Uh, the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll just let everybody know is that, you know, 
uh, at least to today, hacking carries like a two-year minimum, but it could carry a 10-year maximum. And you could go beyond that. Like uh, there's, another, there's, another, there's another hacker, Alberto Gonzalez. He's doing 40-plus years because he kind of went beyond the scope of his case. Um, he pissed he pissed everybody off. FBI, uh, you know, the attorneys, uh, the judge. Uh, so a, as you can see, even though there are minimums and maximums for hacking, the judge could have easily just went beyond that. Um, and you know, I tell you, it was a hell of an experience. I you would never learn this from like Law and Order, for example, or one of those FBI shows. Um, these are things that you have to learn either by doing your research, listening to podcasts like this, um, or or and 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 I really hope you don't but actually going through the process. Um, so yeah, it, it was a hell of a ride. And I tell you that it's, it's when I picked up smoking, right? Mm-hmm. I picked, I picked up smoking because I had no idea what to do with the anxiety. And I, w- I was not getting any, any mental health help like therapy or counseling, psychology, psychiatry, anything. So I was basically a, a bag of bones for, for quite some time. And, you know, I started smoking cigarettes, which is one of my biggest, you know, regrets. And I'm hoping to, to cut that off very soon. But just to give you guys some perspective, uh, it's a very serious thing. And, um, you know, I'm glad it worked out. But the reality is, is it's best to avoid that whole scenario in general. So just to add to that, Hector, yeah, the hacking is like two years, 10 years, somewhere in there. Um, really where they get people that are associated with hacking, obviously there's always money involved or some sort of thing. The, they'll start adding in like wire fraud charges, um, you know, because you can't really have a computer without a wire that crosses, uh, you know, state lines. And so that comes with a 20 year hit and they can get multiple counts of that. So um, the wire fraud is really the, the tough part and how those years can start adding up. Um, and so not to add to like a U.S. civics lesson here and to go a little deeper. So I know we have listeners outside the country, but, you know, this example of how it works is exactly how the U.S. system is set up. We have the legislative branch that makes the laws that, that Hector broke. We have the executive branch that that's part of the FBI and the prosecutors are under. They, you know, charge people with the crimes uh, that the legislative branch has put in effect. And the judiciary branch then comes in and, you know, hands out a sentencing for, uh, you know, the laws that were broke. So, you know, the three different uh, pillars, you know, they kind of, you know, they, they all have their, their part of the case. And, and so, you know, you wouldn't want the executive branch to come up with the penalties. Um, that's why we have the judicial branch. Now, in other countries, I'm sure it's different. I don't know them. Um, but that really, you know, that's the system that we use. And, and I personally think it's the, the best way to, to be fair to everyone. So I, I learned a lot. OK, and and I'm still learning. My my case allowed me to really take a, a kind of a deep dive into, um, you know, how these federal cases work and at least the differences between federal and state and I, I tell you, I really now understand why the feds have like a 94% success rate. You know, Chris, Kristen. I think not, it's 99. I think it's 90, much, yeah. much higher than that. So Yeah. Well, and, and you know, one of the things that I saw, and this, this, this is, it, it kind of touches on Chris's character and, and kind of the work he did. Uh, before Chris even knocked on my door, he kind of already knew who I was. He kind of already knew what I did. He already had evidence uh, and that's a major difference when you're dealing with cops out on the streets. So, uh, they might have, they might think they have probable cause, but they don't really know in the grand scheme of things un- until detectives come in and there's there's a whole bunch of investigative work that takes place. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, I learned a lot about the process. And for any of you that are interested in this topic, uh, definitely send questions in because you know it, it's a great opportunity to have Chris answer some of that stuff. Um, and, and for the for the folks that live outside the U.S., I know we have a lot of listeners and fans from outside the country here, uh, you know, ask those questions as well and, and compare it with your own. I would love to hear, I know we have some fans out of Wales and different places. I would love to hear how their system works um, and kind of, we could compare it here on the, uh, on the next episode. We're, we're huge in Iceland, Hector, huge in Iceland. Nice. So the last question, and this one got me kind of fired up. And so uh, maybe I have to pull back a little on it. So Luis asks, uh, I'm aware that the law enforcement community uh, can be extremely critical and judgmental of everything and everyone at any time. Uh, do you ever have any backlash from former or current colleagues at the Bureau uh, for proudly and unapologetically having Hector as your friend? 
Um, I will say I've not been approached by that, but if I was ever approached by someone, former FBI, former law enforcement, or current law enforcement that's, you know, gave me any sort of backlash about them, fuck them. Um, I've got nothing for them. You know, Hector is a great friend of mine. Um, Hector has done exactly what he was asked to do by our society. Um, he paid, you know, the price uh, uh, for exactly what he was sentenced to. Um, if, if someone has a problem with me being a friends with someone who has followed exactly the way our system works and now is a, a great uh, member of society, a great friend, um, gives back to society. He's giving you guys advice all the time. If anybody has an issue with that, fuck them. And I apologize to my mother. She asked me not to use the upper. <laughs> but anyways, that's how fired I get him about that. So, no, there, there's, there's no one going to come in between uh, me and my, my relationship with Hector. Um, you know, we're going to be friends for life. And I, I don't care if someone had that sort of opinion. I, I wouldn't want them in my life. Well, you know, first off, Chris, I appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm super happy that, you know, you're passionate about that. I mean, you know, I've. I, I was concerned, right? I was concerned, you know, that people would kind of fuck around with you, especially from the Fed area, um, you know, for us being friends or even doing a podcast, right? I, I, I think about a lot of different things. And, you know, the one the one takeaway that I, I kind of walked away from is, well, you know what? If anyone from, from, let's say, the FBI has a problem with that, with our relationship, our friendship, uh, then they're looking at it wrong. Right. I mean, the FBI, anybody at the FBI should look at, at our relationship as a success story. Uh, you know, you did your job as you was a professional, professional law enforcement. You did a phenomenal job with the case. Um, and then not only were we able to develop a friendship, but also look look at me as a person now. Right. I'm, I'm mentoring. I'm teaching. I'm back to community. I'm paying taxes. I'm doing everything. Like you said, I'm doing everything that that was asked of me as part of my redemption back into society. And so, you know, if anybody has a problem with that, then they, they're probably looking at it wrong. And that's that's my take on it. But thank you for, for sharing your, your feelings and opinion on that. Um, and I think that was a good question. What about reverse that, Hector? Has anyone ever gave you a, a, a flack or backlash or for being friends with me? <laughs> no, they think it's cool. They ah. it, they, they automatically go to uh, catch me if you can. You know, that's that's always the, the big thing that comes up, uh, even though the stories are way different, right? Um and the results are entirely different. But yeah, that's kind of the, the first thing that pops into head. Like, wow, you're really friends with that guy. That's so crazy. Like, yeah, that guy is, he's awesome. And, uh, you yeah, know, I kind of I got that from when we had uh, Corey uh, recursion on the episode that, that he wished he sort of had a relationship or, you know, some, at least some knowledge about, you know, his, his the investigators that, that were looking at his case. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that. I mean, it, it only makes sense. I mean, if I was if I was on your in your position, I would want to maintain a, a strong relationship with the person, basically my counterpart. Because at the end of the day, whether they're cooperating or not, we, you know, we have a goal, right? They're, they're trying to get out of their situation as best as they can uh, within the boundaries, within the the scope of, of of you know the law, and then you know you're trying to work with them to kind of seal the deal as well. Like, you technically speaking, you're both kind of working the same angle. Um, you know, so it only makes sense that, you know, that at least in our situation, not only did we work together, you know, what I really appreciate about you, and I've said this before, uh, you were very honest with me and I needed the fucking honesty, Chris. I needed the honesty because everyone else around me, you know, they were part of this radical shit and I needed a reality check where someone said, dude, you know how fucking stupid this is? I think that's one of the big problems of society today. We live in these ideological bubbles, um, you know, where where you need someone from the outside to tell you really what's up. And, you know, reverse that. Like if I lived in a world where I only talked about with, you know, FBI agents and all that and, and, and you know, it didn't have your perspective. We had a podcast a few weeks ago and, and you were surprised. And I told you, you had changed my opinion on something. Um, you know, you have shaped my my mindset on certain things. I'm not, you know, as rigid. So, you know. People need to surround themselves with people from the other side and people, other mindsets and just, you know, uh, you know, share ideas. You know, I, I think that's, that's one of our big problems these days. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if, if you're living in kind of like a little echo chamber or a little bubble, uh, you know, it, it's hard. It's really hard to be self-aware. It's really hard to, to understand that, well, there's more than one perspective. Um, and, and just kind of going back to what I said, you know, when I met you and then you kind of gave me a reality check. You know, that really helped me with the decisions I had to make. Because you know what? If I was, if maybe we would have knocked on my door six months later or a year later 
or you would have came to me two years afterwards, right? Who knows how fucking radicalized I would have been where I would have said, yeah, fuck it. I'm willing to lose the girls and go to prison and be a martyr, like some of these other, knuck- other knuckleheads, um, because I, I'm, I was so married to the concept of, you know, uprising. And, and uh, it, it's just it, it, basically what I'm trying to say is you came at the right time. So thank you for that. And, and uh, you know, I know you were just doing your job, but. This is something that uh, that I need to say. So, well, it's turned out to be one of the best days of my jobs uh, in a long time, because you know, if, if not my whole career, because it's it's fostered this friendship. So, uh, glad I was there. Hector, another great conversation. Uh, listeners, uh, new episode every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Hector, I will talk to you next week. 